0: Welcome to The Farcast, coming to you every week with insiders and experts to give you insight into the changing economic world. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr.
1: Folks, we have one of our favorite Farcast fan favorites coming back with us again this week. The great, the funny, the insightful Kenny Polkari is joining us. We're going to talk about all of these shifts in the markets and what Kenny's thinking. Good morning, Kenny. Good so morning. Thank you, thank you for being with us you very it's a pleasure. Thank you. And good morning to you, uh, Kenny. We are hearing about sort of the death of tech in uh, the media uh, on CNBC this week. They were saying uh, far. Uh, we're rotating out of tech now. Tech is really expensive. And therefore, there's a rotation to the value stocks, to the cyclical stocks, to a lot of the uh, those that haven't done well and haven't kept up. But now's the time. Now's the time you sell Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, blah, blah, blah. And you got to buy all the other stuff because those stocks are dead. And I looked at him and I looked at Scott Wapner. I was like, Wapner, this thing's been going on for 10 years. You're at your own peril if you're calling a top in tech. Uh, I do like the other names, but, you know, uh, to call a top in tech uh, is something people have been trying to do for 10 years. What do you think? Uh-
2: I agree. And I think it's almost ridiculous to call the top or the bottom, really. You could argue it both ways, right? right. I, I think as an asset manager, as a portfolio manager, as somebody that's charged with managing risk on behalf of individuals and, and long-term investors, it's always an ongoing process, right? Investing is, is very dynamic. It's not static. And so I do think that tech at the moment appears to be stretched. Valuations appear to be stretched. Certainly, there's been this massive move into tech. But all that means is that as a asset manager that you Take a look at it, right? You find out where you're out of balance. You peel some money just because uh, uh, tech has gotten so stretched. Doesn't mean you, you you throw it all out and you sell everything and you start from scratch. You don't. You're going to keep a core position. You're going to peel some off, and you are going to take that money and reallocate it to sectors that you know are due to that are that that are set to do better in this new administration. What's that going to look like? What's the platform going to look like? What's what? Where's the risk? What sectors are at risk? What sectors are not? And so it makes perfect sense to to constantly. Yeah,
1: it, 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 it does, Kenny. But here are, the, here are the horns of that dilemma for a for a money manager, right? The right. horns of that dilemma are, if you don't have 11% in Microsoft, if you don't have these huge overweightings in these tech stocks, and they keep going up, your choice to do the right thing for the client, because I agree with you, you diversify out of these things that have overperformed, you put your money elsewhere. But as they keep going up, You're going to underperform, and your performance, if you haven't owned those huge weightings now, looks bad, and it's going to continue to look bad and look worse going forward. So... How do you make that decision when you're getting when you know you get fired if you don't
2: perform? Well, so here's the problem because when you're out of balance all of a sudden your position in Microsoft is not 11%, it's 18% or it's 20%. So I'm not telling you to go below necessarily where you think it, if 11% your number, then bring it back down to keep it at 11% because right now it's at 18%. So you're overweighted in it, right? You're you're out of balance and that's the whole point of uh managing that risk and remaining in balance. And If you think as an asset manager for that particular customer, 11%, an 11% position in that stock is right, then that's what you do. But look, if you're a 30-year-old, versus a 70-year-old, those decisions are going to be very different. Maybe the 70-year-old doesn't want 11% exposure to Microsoft. Thinks it's a great stock. I would love to have some. I don't want 11%. I'm not worried about it. I'm only here for another, you know, dozen years, maybe. And so, therefore, I'm willing to be more conservative. While the, the younger guy, might he want to be 25% in Microsoft because he's so aggressive. So, again, it also depends on who your client is and what you're trying to what you're trying to achieve for that client.
1: And, and do you notice that uh, the 30-year-old now looks really... Really young, and the 70 year old doesn't look really old. Have you noticed that? Yes, I noticed that. The closer I get to that number, the better I look. (laughs) 30, damn right. You know, I'm going to like, I like to go to high school reunions and stuff because I, 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 I like standing there next to the fat, bald guys. Uh, I look that,
2: good, yeah. Isn't, you know. that, isn't that the truth? That is so
1: true. Is oh, so it's, true. It's, it's, uh, the, the vanity, folks, never goes away. You get, just get old and you compare yourself for the other old, old people. So I look good for the old people. Uh, okay, but uh, so, uh, Kenny, as we go through this and say we've got to sort of rebalance and keep things in balance. That's a really tough decision for a portfolio manager when I look at it and I'll say, look, it is inappropriate for Fred and Ethel to have 10% in Amazon. They Correct. might have 2 or 3% in Amazon, or they might have 2 or 3 or 4% in Facebook, or you name the stock here. Right. And if I do the right thing for Fred and Ethel, now I've got to go back and tell Fred and Ethel, listen, this stuff is too expensive. Your performance might look bad for the next, relatively, for the next six months, 12 months. I don't know how long this risk game is going to go along, but there's too much risk, and it's inappropriate for you, and I've got to get Fred and Ethel to see the world my way so that I can do the right thing for him. So many Fred and Ethels want to fight me and tell me that, no, if the Nasdaq's up 70% this year, I want to own all Nasdaq. Well, no, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that.
2: And if the, and if the Nasdaq's down 70%, then what are they going to say to you? Right. Uh, That's always the argument.
1: Right. Well, I know what I can tell you what they say (laughs) to me they don't they wave at you but not with all five fingers that's what they do it's,
2: no i it's, hear you but that's why you know also this whole this whole money in man, money management industry is really so much about your relationship with your client the fact that they you're a trusted advisor somebody that's yes. looking out for their best interest so is fred nethel 70 or is fred nethel 40 again it comes down to an age and a time decision as well and what's the risk profile of fred nethel no matter who they are and so i think that conversation is easier to have with whoever the client is, as long as, you know, the client understands that you're a trusted advisor, that you're always on looking out for their best interest, that you've designed a well-balanced portfolio that's performing in both, you know, kind of uh, uh, stretched markets as well as maybe markets that come under pressure. As long as they're comfortable with you doing that, I think it's, I, I think that they respect and appreciate the fact, that uh, that you're that concerned about them and that you're willing to make those adjustments on their behalf.
1: I've, I've long said that about half a money manager's job, half at max is managing money, and yeah. a minimum half is managing the client. A- absolutely, absolutely. Uh, okay, I want to shift to markets, Kenny. We are seeing some, do- some changes in the markets. The dollar has been falling, right? Yeah. The dollar's fallen a lot. A few months ago, the dollar was like a dollar ten. It might have been a dollar nine. It's now a dollar eighteen versus the euro. Gold got up over two thousand dollars an ounce. It's in the mid nineteen hundreds. Oil's hanging solid at forty-two. The ten-year Treasury was fifty-two basis points last week. Got almost to seventy basis points this week. Sixty-eight basis points. Ladies and gentlemen, you see the ten-year Treasury. Go from fifty-two basis points to sixty-eight basis points today. That's a big move in the Treasury, and the dollar is still weak. What does that mean, Kenny, to you when you see those changes on? On I don't even want to say the fringes because they're almost at the core.
2: No, yeah, no. I think they are at the core. I think part of it is certainly confusion. I think the 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 parabolic move we saw in in gold and silver. Um, was part of that momentum guy momentum trade they were just piling on and every day though gold was going higher and higher and higher and that was almost a fear of missing out trade but yet on the other side when you see treasuries go from 50 basis points to 67 or 68 basis points in such a short period of time that also sends up sends a message that i think investors are getting a little bit more comfortable that some of these problems are going to be resolved right whether we're going to get this vaccine and covid whether the you know now that we know what the democratic ticket looks like that now we can start to focus on what the future is going to look like. And so I'm not necessarily sure that the move in Treasuries is a complete disaster yet. I actually think the move in Treasuries suggests that it's calming down a little bit more, right? When it got more anxious, you saw money piling into Treasuries and yields going lower, and the fact that they moved up a little bit suggests to me that maybe, and look, they're still relatively low, but but they're up from where they were, and so it suggests that maybe people are getting a little bit more comfortable. On the other hand, I think the dollar weakness is going to remain for a while, with the Fed and every other central bank around the world, the Fed anyway, uh, continuing to provide stimulus. I don't think uh, you're going to see the dollar move higher. It's broken all its trend lines. It's now trading, uh, it's probably we found a base right in here. But I think it churns in here for a while uh, until we get through the election season.
1: Kenny, there's been talk of a breakout in stocks in the indices. Uh, I saw two days ago folks were talking about a golden cross. Yeah. A golden cross is a uh, is a technical breakout. Uh, first, tell us what it is in terms of the 50-day and the 200-day. Why is it important if we get one? What does this mean about the S&P? So I mean, here ha- we are at 3380.
2: Right. So that 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 was just on the verge of happening in the transports. And I actually put yes. that in my note. Uh, I put that in my note the other day because I thought it was significant. But the golden cross is when the short term 50 day moving average trend line crosses up and through the long term, the 200 day moving trend line. But it crosses from beneath it up and through it. Right. So it's yeah. it's an ascending Uh, an ascending uh, line. And that typically suggests that uh, the mood has changed and you can see it. Look at what's happened to the transports. I think they're up 10 days in a row straight. And if you look at them, that almost looks parabolic. But you could see that that trend was coming. And when the transports and the Dow uh, move in sync like that together, that's just another positive sign. And although I agree that I think the market's okay here, it also feels a bit tired. So I don't. By any stretch, too, I think it's going to crash, but I wouldn't be surprised, and we keep talking about this, if it just churns here a little bit, churns a little bit lower, 33.50 level, I think it'll find certainly some, uh, some support, and then it continues to try to move higher. Look, we've tested 33.86 now four or five times in the last four or five days. We'll probably try to do it again today. I think the market's just a little bit tired, but I do think the Golden Cross sets us up for better days ahead.
1: Better days ahead and probably higher closes on the year. Kenny, you you mentioned something. When you talk about the Dow transports, at critical points, when the market's beginning to shift momentum and shift direction, you hear experts and old guys uh, who've been around for a while come out and start talking about the transports. Why are the transports
2: such an important indicator at a time of transition? Well, because... transports, by definition, are trucks, rails, airlines, anything that's shipping, anything that's transporting goods and uh, goods around the world. And the fact that the transports are waking up and starting to react would suggest that there's more shipping, more more truck traffic, more uh, more goods being shipped around the world. And that's a positive economic sign, not only in this country, but really it it would reflect the economy the global economy, as stuff starts to move around the world via ship, via air, um, and certainly in this country on train and, and truck. Give us your best
1: advice now, Kenny. We're out of time. Can't believe it. Here, we've done it again. Uh, <laughs> it happens so fast whenever we get to talk to you, and we always learn so much, so thank you so much. And we get great feedback when you're on. So oh, Thank you. Yeah, well, no, thank you. Uh, give, us, give us your view coming into the election here. Uh, You know, we've got a new vice presidential running mate now, uh, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, is it's going to be Biden. Harris,
2: does this election make a difference? What should investors be thinking about it? I think the election—I think this election, once again, is going to make a big difference. I think that Biden—I mean, uh, Harris was the favorite all along. I don't think necessarily the markets were surprised. I think, though, that what people have to be a little bit cautious about, and we'll learn more about this as as we get closer to the election, is where she really stands. You know, yesterday they tried to paint her more as moderate. This morning there were some articles I read in the Journal that paint her a little bit left of Joe— So she's not as far left as Bernie and Elizabeth, but he's left, she's left of Joe. And so we'll see how that plays out. Wall Street apparently is welcoming. The Harris trade, they think that she's not necessarily going to be uh, bad for the market. We saw that kind of in, in some of the action yesterday. But what's going to be important is now the conversation going forward. Energy, the energy sector, the tech sector, are they going to look to break it up? Are they going to look to regulate financials, healthcare? All those sectors are, are now going to rise to the top in terms of uh, being in focus Uh, for asset managers and for investors as we see what the platform on the Democratic side is going to look like and where the opportunities and or risks may be. So, you know, you got to stay awake and you got to stay attentive and you got to stay close to your advisor. Stay close to your advisor. Great advice
1: from our friend, Kenny Polcari. Kenny, thank you so much for being with us again this week. Kenny, by the way, is the founder and CEO of Case Capital Advisors, senior market strategist for Slate Stone also at uh, Campfire, CNBC commentator. Uh, he was on the New York Stock Exchange floor for, oh, about 156 <laughs> years. Um, he, uh, he, was, he was there when they opened the exchange and was friends with God when they were both young. Uh, Kenny, thanks so much for being with us on the podcast. You're the best, man. You're welcome. Have a good day, Michael. Huh? Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be right back with Dan Mahaffey. We're going to follow up on this political conversation. Uh, And then Stephanie Link, also CNBC and a terrific investor. uh, One of the best when we come back on the Farcast.
0: Thank you for joining us on this week's Farcast. We'd like to invite you to follow Michael on Twitter and LinkedIn. On his social media feed, you'll find links to all of Michael's media appearances, articles he's been quoted in, and such newspapers as the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post, and, of course, the Farcast. Additionally, Michael shares some of the articles we are reading at Farm Miller in Washington every morning that we feel have bearing on the investing landscape. That's Michael underscore K underscore Far on Twitter and Michael Far on LinkedIn. And now, back to Michael and the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast, and now here's your host, Michael Far. Welcome back to The
1: Farcast. I'm Michael Farr. You're great to join us again this week, August the 13th. And you say, what could possibly be going on in August? Ah, well, uh, we keep waiting for a break, don't we, ladies and gentlemen? Wouldn't it be nice if the news headlines would just slow down a little bit? It would make Harry Jennings' job a lot harder to find things for us to talk about. But as it is, you know, all of the winds are blowing Harry's way because there's just too much for us to talk about as he plans each week's forecast. <laughs> uh, this is the segment where we talk about politics. When we started the forecast over three years ago, uh, Harry and I had lengthy discussions about whether we needed to discuss Washington politics every week. I mean, would we have enough to talk about? Uh, sadly, we have.
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, don't you wish you'd said no to the politics part on this? We could have <laughs> just had a low-stress podcast. We would have all been happy sipping umbrella drinks, but no, Barry and Michael had to bring in a politics guy. Had to bring
1: in the politics, and there you are. Dan Mahappy manages the uh, Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress's policy programs. He's corporate secretary to the board. He's responsible for the research and policy prioritization. Um, He is a Washington insider. Uh, He is an expert in things China. Uh, He's also on the uh, board at the uh, Chicago area Dr. Shoal Foundation, but really a Washington insider who understands Capitol Hill. His analysis is brilliant, and we have really learned so much from having Dan on for the past three years. And we're getting ready to go into season four, ladies and gentlemen, coming up in September. Can't believe it. Dan,
3: thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Michael. Good to be talking with you,
1: Dan. We we uh, you know we always get these client uh, client uh, listener. Uh, calls, we get feedback uh, from our from our listeners. And last week we got a call from one of our biggest fans, uh, Liz, down in Texas, called in, and she said, I've listened to every far cast. i've I've not missed one. Uh, mr farr, we've I've watched you since you were on Wall Street Week with Lewis Rukeiser as one of the regular contributors there. Uh, my mama and I watch you regularly, and I was very, Flattered, and I thank both Liz and uh, her mother. And she said, I- "I'm I'm concerned that you're not being fair. Uh, you you criticize uh, Vice President Biden for uh, perhaps a lack of mental acuity, uh, and uh, that could be age-related." And she said, "You know, I like Vice President Biden. I think perhaps you're you you may be being fair, but you're not being fair in not questioning President Trump. I mean." He's you know old too, and he has as many gaffes uh, if not more, than Vice President Biden's accused him. why do you give President Trump a pass? And I thought, well, you know what that's actually right. Uh, certainly the president comes across with some outlandish things at times whether we're going to inject disinfectants or whatever the, the topic du jour may be and he does get a pass so perhaps, when, you're, when you are electing or your two nominees for president of the United States are both septuagenarians, maybe we ought to question their mental acuity equally on both sides. So yep. we need to pay attention to that, Dan. Do you have I'm, any I'm,
3: opinion? Well, I guess I'm going for the person, man, woman, camera, TV ticket this year, <laughs> and just going behind all the uh, the mental acuity tests that we're going to be giving these candidates, both of them, as we look at them in these campaigns in the coming days. Look, I think everyone has seen President Trump, and they argue, has he lost a beat? Is he tired? Is this crisis overwhelming him? We've seen performances from him, too, where he can't seem to catch his words, You're right, Michael. They are both septuagenarians. That is going to be part of this. And I think there's others on the Trump team that have started to at least try and pull back on some of the doddering Biden, Sleepy Joe narrative, because, and I think we've talked about this on some of the previous podcasts, you set the expectations so low for Joe Biden that he comes out and has sort of a C-plus debate night, and all of us are going to be like, wow, Joe Biden? Did amazing. This guy's, this guy's got it. So the the Trump campaign's got to worry about the expectations they set. But then I also think it's sort of the, it still doesn't answer the the conversations I have with a lot of Americans and even ones who are conservative. It's simply the idea of, I would like to wake up in the morning not in a cold sweat about what is going on in Washington.
1: You know, we, Drew, we, we really uh, try not to let our politics uh, enter into our discussions on the forecast, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, for myself, uh, it, there's no reason anybody should be interested in my political opinions. My financial opinions, yes. My economic opinions, yes. Uh, policy for the Fed, for fiscal policy, monetary policy, yes. Uh, I will tell you what I think of the economic uh, proposals, from political candidates. But I will give you the economic and business and investor point of view, not a political point of view. So we we really try to do that. We are human and we do fail at times. But Dan also works, uh, Dan Mahaffey also works at a nonpartisan think tank in Washington, D.C. So they they are doing their very best to keep it down the the middle as well.
3: No, and I think you have to keep it down the middle and realize that, in. and I think too, we've seen it, and I know we'll probably get on to Kamala Harris uh, towards the, the end bit, but I think when we look at what's going on with these deals and when we're discussing some of the things in the Postal Service uh, measures, you see both sides. Not grasping the the enormity of these challenges and the politicking. And I think that both parties deserve some of the equal blame right now when you start to see the the, the challenges in deal making and negotiating. But when you talk about the, the mismanagement of the crisis and the executive powers and what we're seeing on these negotiations, and I think it, it really ties in too to what we see with Meadows and Mnuchin on these stimulus and relief negotiations with Congress, is that. There's no clear definition of what the political goal or ideology they want out of these negotiations is. Meadow is being very small government. He thinks they've spent enough. We look at the numbers today. The, the deficit for this year already hit $3 trillion. We're yes. in August. Right. I mean, so this Meadows, is going up big. This is going up big. So Meadows is going to be there saying, look, it's it's the small government. We need to do this. Minuchin and others in the White House are saying, look, we need aid packages, we need stimulus because we're not going to win re-election. Okay, out. Dan, two weeks, so ago,
1: the- two weeks ago, Dan, on the forecast, we were suggesting that a lack of a relief spending bill, which I continue to call stimulus because I'm cold-hearted, a relief spending bill, stimulus, whatever you want to call it at this point, would be bad, would do more damage to the Republicans, that Nancy Pelosi and the... And the Democrats would be able to say, you see, they won't do it. Is it two weeks later now? We are farther from a deal than we were two weeks ago, it seems. Uh, Do you agree we're farther away from a deal than we were two weeks ago? I
3: agree we're farther away from a deal. The pressure is now, Nancy Pelosi was in a good position. It's going to be how long can the moderate Democrats who won flip districts and gave them the House in 2018, how long can they go on without a deal now, too? Along with the Republicans who are vulnerable in the Senate, there's House Democrats who are vulnerable too. That's the are, election Are you
1: saying this isn't necessarily a win then for the Democrats at this point?
3: I don't think it's a win if this goes on another two, till the end of the month.
1: Was the president brilliant in, in uh, passing his own stimulus? I mean, he passed it, he, he went into the room, he came up with the proposal, he voted on it by himself, and apparently it passed, and that's what he announced.
0: Look, I, I,
3: I think the problem with this one is, it's, it's not like the wall on the border where he can show uh, uh, the same segment over and over again and tell his supporters he's done something. People are gonna actually expect the checks in the mail the stimulus, these measures, they're going to, you know, I don't know any small business or payroll provider who's looking forward to handling how they do this payroll uh, uh, relief measure. The states, the the money they're saying, they said it was going to be 400. Well, it turns out states have to chip in another 100. So a lot of people are going to be expecting 400 bucks and only getting 300 unless the state puts in more. So this is all going to, hes he he thinks he's brilliant, but it's going to be a where's the beef moment when, it's not enough for some of these people.
1: Even DeSantis in Florida said that they weren't sure they could support this particular proposal because he wasn't sure he could come up with the hundred dollars a person. It didn't want that. It's not in his budget anywhere. Well, that, let's
3: nor, nor nor does Florida even have the unemployment system to 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 run this. It's held together by twine and duct tape.
1: Another very good point. Speaking of twine and duct tape, let's talk about the election itself. Let's talk about mail-in ballots uh, and a postal office that's being run with twine, duct tape, and a very limited budget that is not being given a budget increase, even though it may be at the absolute heart of the 2020 presidential election in just a couple of months. What? Why, why wouldn't we give some support to the postal system, number one? Let's not take too much time. We've got a lot to get through here.
3: Well, one, it's again, it's going to be the crux of mail-in voting, which uh, Trump does not love. He's hated the U.S. Postal Service because of what it does for Amazon. And his enemy Jeff Bezos and his new uh, postmaster general runs his own private logistics company, which contracts and takes business from the U.S. Postal Service. Although we don't know if he's divested his own holdings in that while taking contracts as postmaster general. On top of that, this is this is a question where it's and I've had discussions about this. The Postal Service is not in great shape, but no. nor nor but we consider do we consider it a service? or a for-profit entity, which is a longer-term conversation. All of this right now, when we need the Postal Service to deliver medicine, logistics, and ballots in November, is like if Sully had the geese go into his engines and turned to his co-pilot and said, now is a great time to fix the underlying structure of the air traffic control system in America.
1: Yeah, we, we don't have time to do that. So as we look now, Dan, at what could be a contested election, we it could end right. up at the You're Supreme going to have Court. You're gonna have being counted. We could have ballots being counted in December and still not know who the president which, of the United State States will be.
3: Yeah, which states require the ballot to be there by election day, which states require the ballot to be postmarked by election day. All of these are, it's gonna be a mess. And I think the best thing we can do is just educate people about patience and how to do this process ahead of time. We're gonna Go be, be back
1: actually, to a hanging Chad
3: moment. I think we're going to be back more into uh, the worst case scenario when you have some of them pulled out. Is what happens when you have a warehouse full of ballots in some swing state with homeland security agents and uh, state police facing off over whether the ballots are counted?
1: So let's 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 go through this. Let's figure out how this is going to stay be a pot- big potential mess. Let's go forward. Flash forward. Six months, if we may. Join me, ladies and gentlemen, on a travel down the road into the future to January the 20th, 2021. Here we are sitting together at 12 noon. According to the Constitution of the United States, a oath of office has to be taken for the next four years for whichever person will become president of the United States. And that person is defined as the person who has received 270 Uh, votes in the Electoral College. If we don't know who that person is, then what happens at noon on January 20th?
3: Well, it depends on how much of the House has been seated, and then we get into truly like a novelistic West Wing episode. We, we've we not done this with the U.S. Constitution type things. And even though, and I, I hope uh, Harry has something like laser sound effects for our time travel we can use, but I'm even more <laughs> worried about December 14th, which is the date when the states have to certify their results for the Electoral College.
1: Uh, so let me, I was told uh, by uh, a lawyer uh, that if, uh, the vote is unresolved. The Constitution calls for
3: the Speaker of the House to assume the duties of president. Now- Correct. Assuming that we've seated the House, because remember, those elections are also tallied this uh, cycle, too. The whole House is up. The, the part of government that stays running is the Senate, the The 66 senators that aren't up for re-election, 67 senators that aren't up for re-election. Can that That's- be run
1: by by quorum? Can that be run by majority vote at the time of those still sitting?
3: It could, and I would have to run the math now on who's up and who's down and what that Senate would be and who's potentially the Senate pro tem, president pro tem of this. But this is where we get into the, the whole Constitution doesn't work this way because we were assumed, one, to have responsible parties handing power off to each other. And two, the, the election night process, which is actually interesting if you look at the, the historical comparisons, election night, where we know the whole answer, is a relatively modern and, and limited yes. phenomenon in U.S. Yes. history. It actually used to take us much longer to do this. But the idea that you should know by 3 a.m. on Wednesday morning who's won the election, just, just don't bank on that.
1: Right now, who is the president pro tem of the Senate? I mean, uh, the vice president acts as president of the Senate. So
3: right now, it would be the, uh, the most senior member of the— it's, it's usually the most senior member of the party, so I believe it's uh, Senator Grassley.
1: Grassley, okay. Fascinating. Years ago, when President Reagan was shot and they had taken uh, the president to George Washington Hospital— uh, a couple of really strange things went on in Washington, and I'm going to tell an inside Washington story that is not public right now for our listeners. Uh, Vice President Bush was actually in Texas, and he was put into the... I think he was in Texas, but they put him up into the air, and uh, they were... They, and, it was, and it was Air Force Two, and it was touch and go, and people were waiting to see if they were going to change the call sign for Air Force Two. That was a big deal. Then, second, they got... Strom Thurmond and Tip O'Neill, and they blocked Constitution Avenue. The police blocked Constitution Avenue, and a motorcade whisked Strom Thurmond, who was president pro tem of the Senate, and Tip O'Neill, who was speaker of the House, and they jetted them down Constitution Avenue to the White House, and they went down into the bunker, because they didn't know if this was a broader attack, and they didn't know if the president was going to live or not. I had a very good friend of mine who was a junior chaplain in the White House at the time. He was the only one, and they took him down into the bunker uh, with Strom Thurmond, with Tip O'Neill, with Cap Weinberger, and with Al Haig. And he described this situation to me. This is inside. You're not going to read this anywhere, folks. You have to listen to the forecast. So he describes this. The bunker in the White House is this little, horrible-looking room. Uh, There's nothing much in there. There were two straight back chairs, on one of which uh, sat Strom Thurmond, who was always about 110 years old. Uh, The other sat Tip O'Neill, who was always very large, and then screaming at each other at the top of their lungs with every expletive known to man in front of this young chaplain, uh, with spittle flying. Uh, was Cap Weinberger and Al Haig arguing and fighting about which one of them was in control. And he said, I looked over and here's here's Strom and Tip, absolutely ashen, absolutely ashen and shaking, wondering if one of them and the next minute or two might be president of the United States and what the hell was going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know you think that all of this stuff uh, is organized. You think that all of this is great system uh, that the American system is just, you know, some well-oiled machine that you watch the Secret Service whisk the president in and out of places and you say, oh, all of government must run like that. All of government is sausage making uh, behind the Mm -hmm. scenes. And and, uh, uh, yeah, you don't wanna, you don't wanna, I've never heard of anyone who's gone to the uh, abattoir and watch them make hot dogs who left the abattoir and said, oh boy, I can't wait to have a hot dog. You know, <laughs> you just don't want to do it. So uh, I, we're already out of time, Dan. I'm sorry here. Uh, our, uh, can, can you just give us a sense um, of what happens now with the polls now that Kamala Harris has been added?
3: Yeah. And I think there's been plenty of ink spilled over the past 48 hours on Kamala Harris. But it's a safe pick. I don't think anyone can say that she is a defund the police or radical left ticket as much as they're going to try to. I think Wall Street and the business community is happy with her because they've seen, look, she has a record as an attorney general of California, but you know it was a pretty straightforward and predictable process working with her. And I think, look, she, she represents a little more excitement for a ticket that needed it. And- it's a safe pick when you're up eight to 10 points in a national poll.
1: Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress. Uh, we're going to take next week off, Dan, go to the beach, have some fun, and uh, we'll be back the following week. And uh, we're getting ready for season four of The this is, uh This is amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, please stay with us. We're going to be right back with Stephanie Link. We're going to hear about markets. We're going to hear about investment strategies through year-end and what she thinks about Wall Street. Washington and the world on the forecast. We'll be right back.
0: Thank you for joining us on this week's forecast. Every week, we bring you experts and insiders to give a deeper understanding of our changing world. If you would be interested in Michael Farr delivering a presentation on the economic forecast for 2021 and beyond, please contact me, Harry Jennings, at 202-530-5608 or email me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. In the past, Michael has delivered presentations at such venues as the Palm Beach Chamber of Commerce, the YPO Economic Summit, and the University of Delaware Economic Forecast. We are booking now for late 2020 and early 2021 for events where Michael will share his views into the recovery from the pandemic, including the consequences of the stimulus and the opportunities for investors. Reserve your date now on Michael Farr's speaking schedule. And now, back to Michael and the Farcast. Thank you for joining us on The Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to The Farcast,
1: where we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Terrific segment with Kenny Polcari, uh, talking a little bit about what he's seeing and the markets. And, we're, and, and then we went to Dan Mahaffey, listening to what this new Biden Harris ticket might mean, and what a contested election may mean, and what happens on January the 20th uh, if, in fact, we don't know who has received 270 Electoral College votes. As we try and process all of this information, we turn to a forecast fan favorite. Stephanie Link is the chief investment strategist at Hightower Investments, Uh, it's a national wealth management firm uh, that. They do investments and financial and retirement planning. She's a CNBC contributor. Ladies and gentlemen, when you see Stephanie Link show up on your television set, take it off a of mute, get a pad and <laughs> pencil, take some notes. This is one of the best people you're going to hear on CNBC. Stephanie yeah. Link, welcome back to The Farcast.
4: Oh, you're so kind, Michael. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. I don't
1: say that about everybody. You know that. <laughs> Uh, not there's not everybody that you want to listen to. I love them, but you don't want to listen to them every every day. So Stephanie, we uh, I was mentioning to Kenny Polcari. It seems to me that in about the past week, strategists and talking heads have declared a death to the Fang stocks. There's going to be suddenly we've decided they're too expensive. Two weeks ago, they weren't too expensive at thirty-two times earnings, but this week they're too expensive at thirty-two times earnings. Now you have to sell them, and now you've got to get into Uh, uh, SOME OF THE VALUE STOCKS, BECAUSE VALUE IS GOING TO BE WHERE IT IS NOW. AND HAVEN'T WE BEEN SAYING THAT FOR 10 YEARS? WHAT IS WALL STREET DOING? (laughs)
4: IT'S FUNNY. I I HAVE BEEN A BIG PROPONENT OF DOING THE BARBELL STRATEGY. SO YOU DO WANT TO OWN SOME DEFENSIVES, SOME TECHNOLOGY, um, ESPECIALLY THE SECULAR GROWING TECHNOLOGY COMPANIES, COMPANIES THAT HAVE TOTAL ADDRESSABLE MARKETS THAT ARE REALLY IMPRESSIVE. SO, FOR EXAMPLE, INTERNET OF THINGS, THE TOTAL ADDRESSABLE MARKET IS SUPPOSED TO BE A TRILLION DOLLARS BY THE END OF THIS DECADE, RIGHT? SO YOU WANT TO BE THERE, RIGHT? YOU WANT TO BE IN WEARABLES, because it's A fifty five a billion dollar. TOTAL ADDRESSABLE MARKET IN TWO YEARS. CLOUD IS GOING TO BE, SAS CLOUD IS GOING TO BE A TRILLION-DOLLAR END MARKET, TOTAL ADDRESSABLE MARKET BY THE END OF THE DECADE. SO YOU WANT TO HAVE EXPOSURE TO THESE NAMES. MAYBE YOU DON'T HAVE TO PAY UP AS MUCH AS THEY ARE TODAY BECAUSE THEY AREN'T CHEAP, BUT YOU WANT TO BE INVOLVED. ON THE FLIP SIDE, YOU DEFINITELY WANT TO HAVE SOME EXPOSURE TO SOME OF THE CYCLICAL COMPANIES, um, SOME OF THE VALUE STOCKS, INDUSTRIAL, SOME OF THE FINANCIAL, SOME OF THE DISCRETIONARY, BECAUSE I DO think that as this stimulus continues to get into the system, and we've got um, fiscal policies and monetary policies, and it's as much as 44% of U.S. GDP, it's huge. That is a tailwind to get this economy back in shape eventually. It's not going to happen right away, but I think this time next year we will see better growth and as a result better profits. And you want to have exposure to the companies that have are, that are economically sensitive, which happen to be value stocks. So, But for value really to work, Michael, you know this better than I, you need better than expected growth and you need a little bit of inflation and what we don't have is we don't have inflation yet although this week was sort of interesting with the ppi and cpi's numbers coming in hotter than expected
1: i saw those come in hotter than expected and i've been seeing i think we've seen some stealth inflation in different areas i mean you know housing prices have been creeping up stock prices are certainly going up if you look at health care and other areas we have seen some inflation it's going to be interesting to see what happens in education uh, so stephanie uh, here's here's the uh, issue that I was talked to Kenny about too. If you look at this huge weighting of these fang stocks in the S and P, in the Russell 1000, in whichever index, and you say, all right, these fang stocks are 20, somewhere between 22 and 29 percent of the index, depending on which ones you include or don't include, but it can be as many as, you know, six stocks are 25 percent of the index, which means. That's a heavy, heavy weighting. So if you look at Fred and Ethel and say, Fred and Ethel, you shouldn't have 25% in six stocks that are trading at all-time highs at a market that's nearing its highs, you pair them back, you make the shift for them because it's the right thing to do, and those stocks continue to tear, you're (laughs) making a decision for Fred and Ethel to put them in a position where they're going to underperform the benchmark in order to do the right thing for them. How do you do that as an investment manager?
4: It's really it's a it's a it's a very good question. It's a very tough question, right? Because yeah. you do want to participate. You don't want to lag your your benchmarks. Um, and I some of these names are just enormous to your point of technology as a whole in the S&P 500 is 26% weighting, but if you look at Apple and Microsoft, they're over 6 percent of the weights. So at the very least, I think you definitely want to have exposure. Do you have to be 200 or 300 basis points overweight these stocks at this point? No, absolutely not. I think you can be tactical, but I don't think you want to get off of these names because just what I said before, these have total addressable markets that are so impressive that they are going to see. And by the way, I think this work from home, stay at home is only going to increase the total addressable markets for some of right. these companies right so right. we're probably under um uh, underappreciating what the earnings power is for these companies and so to me you don't want to get off but you do want to have diversification and that's why i say you own a barbell you own some of these names you own some healthcare you own some cyclicals you don't want to be on one whole side of the market. It just doesn't. It just doesn't make sense
1: to me. Yeah, I, I mean, I I agree with you, uh, uh, and I agree with you completely. And by the way, if the right advice to Fred and Ethel is, uh, look, they the, in order to pre- performing. If you if we're really going to perform and or try to outperform the benchmark if that means you have to have too much risk in your portfolio, there are times when the investment manager and investment counselor has to say, look, this is too much risk for you, Fred and Ethel.
4: Mm-hmm. We're
1: going to go here. We're going to get rich slowly. We're not going to expose you to that because you can't afford the downside. Mm-hmm. You can't afford this volatility. And and then you're doing your job. Um, and, and it's tough doing that right thing for the client. Uh, uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to Chip, now Stephanie, if I if I may, it's always so cool to talk to you. Um, <laughs> thank you.
4: Uh, what is it?
1: So thank you. What what does it mean if we don't get this stimulus package for another month for markets? And what does it mean if we have this election that isn't settled until January? Let's 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 talk about a no stim because in Washington, as of last night, we are farther apart from a deal than we were two and a half weeks ago when we thought we'd have one within two weeks.
4: Mm-hmm. I think the market is absolutely not pricing that to happen. and I think the market is pricing to get another trillion or so in terms of fiscal policy. I do believe you're going to get it. <clears throat> I think this is Congress and this is what Congress does, right? They constantly go at it and they're constantly debating and discussing and arguing and and there's and they're and they they send out messages that may not be actually true they may be closer to the to, to an agreement than we actually know but they're saying things so that each side looks better if you will right and they're trying to get things right that's the whole part of negotiations so i think you're going to get it and i think you're going to get it at the, by the end of this month <clears throat> or early september there's just absolutely no margin for error. We need it. The consumers need it. The small, medium businesses need it. Uh, The school systems need it to get the kids back to school safely. So there's a lot here that is needed. And I think both sides understand that. But this is a negotiation. If it does not happen, Michael, I THINK THE MARKET GOES DOWN PRETTY darn HARD. IN TERMS OF THE ELECTION, I MEAN, I THINK, YOU KNOW, YOU KNOW THIS, AGAIN, BETTER THAN I, THAT THE MARKET is, DOES NOT LIKE, um, YOU KNOW, UNCERTAINTY. AND IT WOULD BE CLEARLY un, 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 NOT A GOOD THING IF WE DON'T GET THE RESULT ON THE DAY OF where we WHEN WE VOTE. Um, I DO THINK WE ARE GOING TO VOTE um, ON THAT DAY. I DON'T THINK THEY'RE GOING TO MOVE IT LIKE uh, PRESIDENT TRUMP WANTS TO. Right. BUT um, I, I THINK THAT IF WE DON'T GET AN ANSWER, you'll have some bumpy uh, some some bumpy times in the marketplace.
1: <clears throat> we have investors who who watch you certainly on CNBC regularly and listen closely to what you say and and they're bombarded by so many headlines now. We we've, we've got maybe election interference from Russia, maybe now from China. We have trade talks stalling with China how do you prioritize the various headlines that hit you every day and try and think about them in terms of how that's going to sort of filter into the way you think about your portfolio and your strategy? Because I think a lot of folks walk around feeling overwhelmed.
4: Yeah, yeah, I would agree because especially add on social media, right? So you go into Twitter and you go into Facebook and and LinkedIn and you're reading all of these articles, I say turn it off. <laughs> That's what I said. And <laughs> don't like tell it. CNBC I said that, but no. I do. I truly believe that because you can get really wrapped up in all of the day-to-day. Let us, let you and I, like let, let us figure that out. Let us process what we think is important. But Fred and Ethel, you turn the TV off and you trust your advisor and that your advisor is gonna focus on fundamentals. ON HIGH QUALITY COMPANIES. AND, OH, BY THE WAY, IF WE HAVE A SITUATION LIKE WE DID BACK IN MARCH AND APRIL, WHEN THE MARKET FELL, I KNOW YOU WERE IN THERE BUYING HIGH QUALITY COMPANIES. I WAS UPGRADING MY my PORTFOLIO, LOOKING AT GOOD BALANCE SHEETS WHEN I ALSO LOOKED AT DIVIDENDS. AND I CALL THEM ACCIDENTALLY HIGH YIELDERS yes. BECAUSE THEY FALL, RIGHT? AND THAT MEANS THE YIELD GOES UP. BUT IF THEY HAVE GOOD LIQUIDITY AND CASH POSITIONS AND THEY'VE GOT GOOD MARKET SHARE AND MANAGEMENT TEAMS, THAT'S WHEN YOU WANT TO BE BUYING, RIGHT? WE BUY LOW, WE SELL HIGH. So well, we're supposed
1: to, but course. We, I mean, we're supposed to, but we keep hearing, you know, folks tell us to buy these stocks that are still pretty high, it looks like to me, because they've got momentum behind them. Momentum trades work as long as the momentum works, but when it doesn't, and that momentum goes the other way, oh boy, this, it, that is very painful.
4: And that's why you have to be diversified, and that's why you have to own high-quality companies. That's what I do. I own blue chip companies, and I constantly focus on the fundamentals, looking at you know the balance sheets and the income statements, and and how they're delivering and how they're executing. And are they buying back stock? Are they increasing their dividend? There are all kinds of things to look at. Let let us figure that stuff out, and 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 filter out the noise um, as best that we can. But uh, I know it's hard to do. <laughs> it definitely well- is hard to do.
1: So we have a we, we, we have an election coming up in a couple of months here. Uh, we're coming into year end in one of the strangest years I remember in my career, I'm I'm sure in your career as well. What what give us a little bit of final advice for Fred and Ethel? Yeah, I think your first advice is very good you know, uh, don't obsess about all of the daily headlines. You have professionals who are working for you and are thinking about this stuff tr- truly 24-7. Mm-hmm. I never shut down on what I'm thinking about in the markets and the economy. I know you don't, because you and I get to talk about this more frequently and it's, it's kind of fun when you, I mean, I, I, it, part of this makes us kind of nerdy, you know that, right?
4: <laughs> uh, uh, yes. I mean,
1: this is really what we think is cool. <laughs> I mean, but, but there are nerds like Stephanie and like me who think that this stuff is cool. We're thinking about it all the time, uh, but we do have a lot going on at the year of a pandemic and a, and a huge recession, depression. What should they be thinking about in their portfolios going into year-end as we, as we finish up today?
4: Well, I think that there's this old adage, don't fight the Fed, right? Yes. And you've learned that. I think, as I mentioned before, the liquidity in the system, so the Fed um, and, and the monetary policies they've put in place and the fiscal policies that have been put in place are very big tailwinds. Let, let, let me let me give you a stat. So I mentioned before that if you combine the fiscal and the monetary policies, it's 44% of U.S. GDP. Back in 2008, the last quote-unquote crisis... The fiscal and monetary policy that that were put in place only was 5% of U.S. GDP. So we're at 44%. It's an enormous amount of money in the system. And so that is a tailwind. And that is something that you don't fight. And a lot of investors have fought it. Um, But you know what, we've been doing this a long time, and we, we are focusing on the fundamentals, and I think you want to continue to stay diversified, but I think you want to continue to stay in the equities market, because there really is no alternative at this point.
1: Don't you think it's remarkable, ladies and gentlemen? You've seen Stephanie Link on television. I mean, that she has this much experience at 29 years old is absolutely <laughs> remarkable, one of the reasons that we love her. Stephanie Link is chief investment strategist and portfolio manager at Hightower, a national wealth management firm. They provide investment and financial and all of that sort of stuff, and she's on CNBC. She is a terrific pros pro, uh, and we are so grateful that you would join us this morning on The Farcast.
4: It's my pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another week on The Farcast. We're going to take next week off and coming back for season four of The Farcast. From Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, for The Farcast, I'm so grateful to each of you for tuning in. Please share us on social media. Please watch Stephanie and me on CNBC. When you see it on, take it off mute. We'll be back in two weeks. Have a great summer. Have a great rest. I'm Michael Farr.
0: Thank you for joining us on this week's Farcast. We hope you enjoy the show as much as we enjoy making it, and we'll share with a friend. A special thanks to Michael's guests, Kenny Polcari, Dan Mahaffey, and Stephanie Link. The Farcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. Please subscribe and don't miss a minute. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at hjennings at Let us know any questions or comments you have and topics you'd like us to cover as we begin Season 4 of the Farcast, coming soon would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any index fund, manager, or strategy. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature and are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of investment advice by Farm Miller and Washington or any firm any of our guests may represent. Miller in Washington does not make representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast. And before you make any investment decision, we strongly recommend you consult with a financial professional to determine what may be best for, for you and your individual needs and your goals. And if we can help at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at Hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help. I'll be happy to put you in touch with one of our investment professionals for a review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Join us in two weeks as we begin season four of the Farcast. Go beyond the headlines every week: The Farcast, Wall Street, Washington, and the World.